If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we're going to be looking at the first six verses tonight, which say this, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That, by the way, comes right out of Psalm chapter 2, that phrase, who ruled the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the inspired scriptures, and we thank you for this book of Revelation and for people who take a serious interest in it, Lord. It's a wonderful thing to see in this day and age in which we live, and we pray that we would understand this book thoroughly, accurately, make proper application, and be able to give a proper defense of the future events. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Just a little over one year ago, in 2021, there was an article in NPR that said, Officials say hate crimes against Jews are growing in the aftermath of Gaza violence. And I'm quoting from the article now. In Skokie, Illinois, it was a shattered window at a synagogue. In Ball Harbor, Florida, it was four men yelling, Die, Jew. In Midtown Manhattan, it was a group of people attacking a Jewish man in the middle of the street in broad daylight. From California to New York, a wave of anti-Semitic attacks has broken out in communities over the last weeks, leaving officials and law enforcement and governments scrambling to confront the domestic ripple of recent outbreak of violence to Israel. The Anti-Defamation League said that in the week after fighting erupted in Gaza, it received 193 reports of possible anti-Semitic violence. On Twitter, the group said it found more than 17,000 tweets using various variations of the phrase, Hitler was right. We are witnessing a dangerous and drastic surge in anti-Jewish hate. Anti-Semitism is rising in America. It's rising all over the world. Something is happening in regard to Israel. Clouds are forming, and in the tribulation, Israel is going to take front and center stage. God has a national program for Israel. He has a national kingdom program for Israel. And God reveals it in the Bible, and Satan hates it. And Satan hates Israel. Those who demean Israel, those who hate Israel, those who hate the Jews, are not being dominated by the God of the Bible. They're being dominated by the evil one. Now, as we come to Revelation chapter 12, we come to what many consider to be the heart of the book. Here in the Great Tribulation is the point when everything begins to turn toward Israel. And it is not going to be a good turn toward Israel. It'll be a turn that will be for the worse. In the Bible, there is one nation, one people, who have been specifically promised a righteous land with land dimensions clearly spelled out in Scripture. 
There's one nation that has been promised a righteous king that will rule over her and will be a righteous kingdom that will be honored by all nations of the world. And that nation is Israel. And the people are the Jewish people. These are the people who are the physical descendants of Abraham. And when Jesus Christ came to this world, he specifically was born a Jew. And those who initially followed him were Jews. And when it came time for him to select disciples, he selected Jews. And when he first began his ministry, he made it clear that it was specifically aimed at Israel. Here's his words, not mine. He said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When he was here, he also said that he was specifically sent to the lost people of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what we clearly see here is that Israel is very important to God and to Jesus Christ. She has a relationship with God as no other nation has had, will have, or will ever have. Now, Grace Age Christianity owes a tremendous debt to the Jewish people. But let's always remember, as we've brought out multiple times in this church, we're grafted into Israel's program. She's not grafted into our program. Jerusalem actually became the center of Christianity. And the early stages of development of the church took place there. And had it not been for the Roman wars against the Jews, which scattered them and destroyed Jerusalem, Jerusalem would still be the center of Christianity. The first believers of the church were Jews. Those who wrote the New Testament books of the Bible for the church were Jews, with the exception of Luke. And since Israel is so critical to the Bible, since Israel is so important to the prophetic program of God, since Israel is important to the whole program of God, it's only logical to assume Satan will hate the Jews. He will wage war against the Jews and seek to destroy the Jews. And since part of the reason for the great tribulation is to regather Israel to take her into that kingdom, we can expect that at some point in the tribulation, Satan is going to unleash a destructive barrage against Israel in an attempt to destroy her, and that is the point that is stressed right here. It starts right here. What we see in Revelation chapter 12 is Satan has always hated Israel. He's always tried to destroy Israel. And during the great tribulation, he's going to intensify his efforts, but he's not going to succeed because God is not going to let him succeed. Now, in these first six verses, we kind of get a panoramic overview of Satan's hatred against Jesus Christ. We get an overview of his hatred against God, and we also get an overview of his hatred against Israel. And I want to restate this point. Anyone who hates Israel and hates the Jews is demonic. It's coming from Satan. There's no way they can have a right relationship with God. And from this text of Scripture, you'll have to conclude any anti-Semitism that hates Israel is satanic. I want to be very clear on this point. So this is not just people who are confused, who are absolutely haters of Israel. These are people that are actually being led by the evil one. Now, there are two main signs that these verses present. And the first one we're going to call the sign of Israel, the sign that relates to Israel. In verses 1 to 2, we read, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Now, the first thing we see here is there's a great sign, literally a mega sign in Greek. 
meaning this is a major size and measurement type of sign. I suspect that this gigantic sign will actually appear in heaven and be seen in heaven. I mean, by virtue of the fact that he mentions this along in the context of the sun and the moon and the stars, I suspect that people will be able to look up into the sky and actually see this. People who are on earth are going to see this sign. Now, the word sign is the word semeon. It is the word that literally refers to kinds of things that God does that shows something. They're usually miraculous kinds of things. And we know that from the opening part of the book of Revelation that God was going to communicate some things in signs because that's what he said. I mean, he said in the first verse of the book that he was going to use signs to illustrate things, but this is going to be a very visible sign. We learn from verse 1 that this sign is a woman. That's what the text says. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman. I think people are going to look up at the sky and see this. A woman who's clothed with the sun and the moon, and on her head is a crown of 12 stars. Now, in this book of Revelation, there are four women. We met one of them earlier when we were going through the church of Thyatira. Her name was Jezebel. And Jezebel turned out to be a false prophetess who was known for false teaching. She was leading people into idolatry and immorality, so we met her. We're going to meet another one, this woman tonight, which I'm going to prove was Israel. That's what I think it is. And then there is the harlot woman that we'll meet later in chapter 17, who is the Babylonian harlot. And then we're going to meet the bride. And the bride shows up in chapter 19, and that is a reference to the church. Now, this imagery here of this woman clothed with the sun is imagery that comes right out of the book of Genesis, and it comes from the dream of Joseph in Genesis 37. So I'd like you to go back, if you would please, to Genesis chapter 37, because I want to show you exactly the image that this is being drawn from, because it's a critical key to interpreting the text. In Genesis 37, and we'll look at verse 9, the text says this, Now he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I've had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon, there we are, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now he would have been the twelfth star, but there were eleven, because eleven brothers. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now we learn that the sun was Jacob in that dream, the moon was Rachel in the dream, and the stars were the eleven brothers of Joseph or the eleven tribes of Israel. In fact, Jacob, Joseph's father, actually gave the interpretation to the dream and realized it was about them. And in his interpretation, he saw the Jewish family bowing down to Joseph. And as we shall see, this sign in heaven will lead to nations of the world bowing down to Israel. So this imagery in Revelation is clearly connected to Israel from the book of Genesis. Now, how will people on earth know that? Well, you'll have 144,000 Jews who are sealed by God who will be telling exactly what this sign represents and what it means. The sun, the moon, the stars are majestic planets that have been created by God to display the glory of God, and that's what Israel was originally created to be. Israel was created to be a nation of God that was designed to reflect his glory. It was designed to stand out like the sun, to stand out like the moon, to stand out like the stars. People should have 
been able to look at the nation Israel and say, man, that nation really does reflect the glory of God, just like the sun, moon, stars. But of course, Israel has not responded to the word of God. She doesn't reflect that. But the Jews are going to reflect that. And we're getting near the point here where the program of God is swinging to her to make her reflect that. So we learn about this great sign that appears in heaven. In verse 2, we learn that this woman was with child, and she's about to give birth to a son. We learn from verse 5, it is a son, and it is. So the real question is, who is the woman that this is metaphorically referring to? Who's the son? Well, from Isaiah 9, 6, which says a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, we may conclude that the us is a reference to Israel. And I think you want to get that in your mind the person who's going to give birth to this son would be the nation Israel. The Catholic Church says it's a reference to Mary. But the problem is, if you're going to say that, what do you do with verse 6, which says that she's only going to be here 1,260 days, and she'll be here and be to the end of this. That doesn't make much sense. Some Protestants have concluded that this woman is the church, but the problem with that is... Jesus Christ, we did not give birth to Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is the church age was born by him. In fact, in Matthew, he said, I will build my church. We come from Christ. Christ doesn't come from us. And then you have old Mary Baker Eddy, and she said that she was the woman who was giving birth here, and she was the lady that was predicted here. All of that is just wrong. The Apostle Paul was clear that Jesus Christ was not born through the church, born through Israel. So the image of verse 2 is that the prelude to the birth of this son Jesus is going to be a very intense, long, difficult pregnancy and labor. In other words, before this son would come into existence to take over the world, before this son would come back to reign and rule, this nation Israel is going to go through a long, painful process. She's going to suffer a lot of hardship. She's going to suffer a lot of things before her Messiah is going to show up. And that point is clearly predicted in multiple passages of the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah wrote, As a pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she rises and cries out in her labor pains, Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed in labor, we gave birth as it seems only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Clearly, Isaiah connects all of this to Israel and the sufferings that Israel would go through. Jeremiah said, For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hand saying, As woe is me, for I faint before murderers. Jeremiah predicted there will be a horrible time that Israel will go through just before her deliverance comes, just before the sun comes to give her deliverance. Micah wrote, writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So Micah predicts there's going to be a horrible time in which Israel is going to be on the run and fleeing to areas to try to hide. And then Micah says, therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Clearly, this sign that shows up in the sky at this point in the tribulation is a sign that points directly to Israel. 
And there have been many hard, laborious years that that poor nation has undergone ever since Rome really killed 1.1 million Jews in AD 70. She's gone through a long drought of a lot of suffering. I mean, she has struggled through satanic attack after satanic attack. There have been many years of national persecution against Israel, but the sun is about to come from the sky to deliver her, and the reason why this shows up in the sky right now is because you're in the center of the tribulation, and this first sign is a sign that says this is all now going to turn to Israel. This is about Israel, and it's going to be the final trouble And it will be a tough labor pain trouble that she's going to go through. But it will be the final trouble till the Son comes to redeem her. And that Son will be Jesus Christ who will come a second time. Now that brings us to the second sign, though, the sign that refers to Satan. Verses 3 to 6. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now verse 3 says there's another sign that appears in heaven and this other sign, it's another of the same kind of sign. That's the pronoun another, another of the same kind, alas. And I believe those signs are going to be visible. I think they're going to be visible. People will be able to look in the sky. They know the tribulation at this point is coming directly from God. My goodness, In the previous sealed judgments, God's moving mountains. Remember that? He's picking up mountains, moving mountains and islands. And these people are praying, we want to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. And so they realize this is all coming from God. So when this sign shows up, it's just going to be another scary, eerie moment for those that are on earth to experience during the tribulation. Now, the sign appears, and the sign is of a great red dragon. A great red dragon. This great red dragon, we know who he is. I mean, because verse 9 tells us who he is. Verse 9 of the chapter, And the great red dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan. Now, there are times in the Old Testament where this monster type of language is used to describe Israel's satanic enemies. In this case, it's used to describe Satan. But... In Psalm 74, Asaph said God will eventually deliver his people from monsters and Leviathan. Isaiah said the same thing. Now this dragon is described as the great red dragon. As I pointed out, he's identified. We don't have to guess who he is because he's identified for us in verse 9 as being Satan. He's adjectivally called great because of the size and intensity of what he's about to do. What he's going to be given the freedom to do. He is a wild, untamable killer. He's a deadly beast, and he's going to have permission to, as it were, pour out his wrath as part of the wrath of God at this point in the tribulation. And there are seven specific facts that are brought out about him here. First of all, he's red. That's what's brought out about him. In fact, verse 3 makes that point. Behold, a great red dragon. 
There's no doubt that that color points to the fact that he's murderous and out for blood. And I mean, he will be a bloodthirsty individual. You're going to meet his number one man, the Antichrist, here probably in two weeks. You're going to meet him. And this guy is out for blood. He's being led by Satan, and Satan is out to kill and destroy, and that's what he's going to do. He's out to murder the people of God. I mean, Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies, and then he called him a murderer from the beginning. I mean, Satan is out to destroy and murder people. And those that are connected to Satan often are death-oriented. I mean, people aren't led of God to just go out and kill people. That's not God leading them. Who is leading them? Well, it's probably the evil one. And there's no question that Satan is behind many killers. Satan is behind many suicides and many abortions. Satan has no regard for human life. No regard whatsoever for human life. He's involved in all kinds of things that kill people, like drugs and murder. And it's no coincidence that many of those things, and many people that get connected to Satan, they wear dark clothing. They like dark things. I knew a lady who came to faith in the Lord who used to be involved in those dark things. And she said, she told me, she said, when I was involved in that stuff, I'd lie in a room the lights off in the dark. I go, well, what was that all about? And she said, oh, I just like the dark. I mean, that's what satanic people are involved in. Well, at this point in the tribulation, Satan is about to kill at a mega level, and this sign will be seen in heaven. I mean, they're going to see this dragon in the red, and that's that puros red in Greek, that fiery red like you'd see in a fire engine, a fire truck. I mean, that's the kind of red it's going to be when they look in the sky and see him. The second thing they're going to see here is he has seven heads. Now, we learn... What this is from chapter 17. So go over to chapter 17 of Revelation, chapter 17. And here again, we just allow Scripture to interpret itself. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9, here's what we read. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the women sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while." So we learn from this that the seven heads are seven major kings and seven major world political leaders. And I think they literally are going to function as a king, which means they're going to have dominant dictatorial authority and power. That's how they're going to govern. And we think this has reference to the total number of powers that will be permitted to dominate national Israel and Israel's history too. In other words, I don't think it's a coincidence that in Israel's history, there are seven major powers that God allowed to dominate Israel. Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then this final power, which turns out to be, as Daniel predicts, a revival of the Roman Empire. That will be the seventh and last power. What we learn here is that the real leader or head of these powers, the real leader behind these world forces, the world leader behind this Israeli hatred and this anti-Semitism is Satan. And as we pointed out last time, the political world is under satanic power. It's being run by beasts. I know people don't like to hear that, but it is. It's being run by beasts. There's not a political party anywhere in the world that's going to bring peace and righteousness to this world. I guarantee you that is not going to happen. They get caught up in power and money, and you know how the game works. I mean, you've just watched it over your life. And then that is a game where Satan plays that game. It's not God leading that. Satan's leading that. He's controlling that. And that's what that number seven indicates. This third fact they're going to see, which is brought out there in verse three, is he has ten horns. Well... We kind of get the answer to that, too, because if you go over to Revelation 17, again, 
I'll just point out verse 12. We get the answer to what these ten horns are, so we don't have to guess or speculate. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as ten kings with the beast one hour. These have one purpose, and they gave their power and authority to the beast. There are ten horns. They obviously are said there or identified to be ten kings, ten world leaders. They're going to give their allegiance to Satan and to his man in the final division of the Roman Empire that will be an all-out assault and war against Israel and against God. Now, these are going to be in existence when that Antichrist takes power. They have not yet received their power, and I don't think they've received it yet. Because when you check NATO, it's not boiled down to the number 10. It will be. There will be something that will boil that European nation power down to 10, and those 10 will be in place when all of this goes down. Daniel saw exactly the same thing. Daniel said in Daniel 7, After this I kept looking in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise. After them he will be different from the previous ones. He will subdue three kings. So Satan is going to actually use his power to empower these leaders during the tribulation to become powerful world leaders in their hatred against Israel. He's going to be controlling these world governments. He's going to be controlling these world powers. These world leaders are going to give their allegiance to Satan. As they look into the sky and look further at this dragon, they'll notice he has seven diadems. That's what you see in verse 3. And the red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. There's no question that when you read that he had seven diadems on his head, he's got royal authority in the world here. God has let him in this final three and a half years, have power, world power, world authority. These powers of the world will be under his control. Thank God we're not going into the tribulation. I'm telling you, thank God we're not going into the tribulation because even as bad as things may be right now, we still have believers here and there's still the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit at work in the world in which you and I are alive right now and we still have God who sovereignly cares for his bride that we are here in this world right now. But I'll tell you what, you take us out of here. You take the believers out of here. You pull out the spirit of God that indwells those believers. And this is the kind of thing that will happen. And there's no question that Satan is a powerful angelic being. He has authority and power. And if we consider here that there are seven continents in the world, he has seven diadems, I mean, you could logically conclude you have Europe, Asia, Africa, North America, South America, Australia, Antarctica. We could conclude logically that, you know what? During this part of the tribulation, he'll dominate the whole world. During the tribulation, as part of a worldwide judgment, God is going to permit him to have royal power, the power he's always wanted for just a short time. He'll use that power to try to destroy the nation Israel and anything else connected to God, but primarily it'll be aimed at Israel. Now the fifth fact is he controls one-third of the angels. Verse 4 says, And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. God wants his people to know he wanted to have John understand and then write it down for us that Satan controls one-third of the angels which means he doesn't control two-thirds of the angels. 
Now, we learn from Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, and this is where this doctrine class of angelology that Mr. Kelly teaches is so valuable. But you learn from those two passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that one-third of the angels defected with Satan when he led his revolt against God. We know from Job's statement in Job chapter 38 that when God created the earth, all the sons of God rejoiced, all the angels rejoiced. So sometime in between when God created the earth and when God created man, there was this defection that took place in the angelic realm, and one-third of the angels, whatever the number is, which we don't know the number, but one-third of the angels went with Satan. I specifically think it occurred after the fifth day of creation when God said, let us make man in our image. I think that's when the jealousy of Satan really kicked in, and he got an allegiance of angels to follow him, Because he said, I'll be like the most high God. He's going to create humans in his image. Well, what about us? What about me? I think Satan's thinking like that in his arrogance. And he says, I want to be like the most high God. And at that point, I think that's when one third of the angels defected and followed him. They don't have any possibility for salvation, by the way. Once they are in that demonic army, they are forever in that demonic army. And apparently it was a one-time decision. The angel could decide, am I going to stay with God? Am I going to go with Satan? Well, we know from Daniel's account that fallen angels or fallen stars fell from heaven, and apparently one-third of the angels went with him. Which brings us to the sixth fact. He had a specific objective. We learn in verse 4, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Satan's objective is, I need to destroy Jesus Christ. I need to destroy anything connected to Jesus Christ. And as soon as Jesus Christ was born, Satan literally used his angelic force through Herod to try to slaughter babies. What we learn here is Satan's behind that. He's behind that baby killing. He wanted to slaughter babies, hoping he'd kill Jesus Christ. Satan and his forces have been out to kill anything connected to God on earth. It started when he killed Abel simply because he offered an acceptable sacrifice to God. Then Satan tried to pollute the Jewish line by producing Ishmael instead of Isaac. Then Satan tried to destroy Israel by killing all Israeli babies in Egypt. And when Jesus Christ was finally born... Literally in this earth in Bethlehem, he tried to kill him. That has been the motive operandi for Satan all throughout history. He's hated Israel. He wants to exterminate her because he realized that's the nation of God. Now he realizes at this point in the tribulation that it's not going to be long until that son of God is coming back. And that son of God is going to take over the world. And when this sign appears in heaven, he realizes my days are numbered. And so he's going to unleash an onslaught against Israel, the likes of which this world has never seen. It'll make Hitler look like a little boy scout compared to what he's going to do worldwide. He'll be led by Satan and his fallen angels to try to exterminate the Jew. But the final fact that's brought out is he will fail. We read in verse 5, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, 
who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, there are three things that we learn there in verse 5. That son was born. We, of course, know he was. Jesus Christ was born. Satan didn't stop that. We also know, we jump ahead now to when he's going to rule the nations, and he goes back to that, as I pointed out in Scripture reading tonight, Psalm chapter 2, he'll rule those nations with a rod of iron. So we jump over his life, and we jump over the cross, and we go to the point where he's about to rule as king. And then we learn he was caught up to God and to his throne. That's where he's at right now. So we learn a lot about Jesus Christ right there in verse 5. But verse 6 is very important because it proves that even though Satan is going to try to rid the world of the Jews for 1,260 days, 1,260 days at 30 days a month is three and a half years, exactly three and a half years, and he will not succeed. We may notice that the same number appears again in verse 14. It's called time, times, and half a time. A time is a year, times is two years, half a time is a half year or three and a half years. That's exactly the same time frame Daniel said that he was going to be brutal against Israel. He would have authority over the world. He would try to kill the Jews for three and a half years. He's going to try and eliminate Israel. What we learn from verse 6 is he won't succeed. Many Jews are going to flee to a place where God will protect her. The place is described as a wilderness. There will be places that will be a sovereign safe haven and hideout for Israel during this part of the tribulation. Now remember, they're seeing this in the sky. People are going to look up in the sky and see this. Now there are two applications biblically to the fact that she's going to flee to the wilderness. The first application is I literally think there will be people who will go to a literal wilderness and mountain area and hide out there and will be protected there. I base that on Matthew chapter 24. If you go to Matthew chapter 24 just quickly tonight. In Matthew chapter 24, and I want you to notice verse 15, we read, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, this happens at the three and a half year point of the tribulation. We'll talk about that in another time which is spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. So what we have here is we have here a time in which literally Satan now has three and a half years to try to exterminate the Jew It will be kicked off by what's called this abomination of desolation when this Antichrist that you'll meet in a couple of weeks sits in the temple and demands that he be worshipped as God. And God tells his people, when you see that, you get out of there as fast as you can. And some people are literally going to go to the wilderness. Now, I want to give you a little bit of theological speculation, although I think it's well within biblical grounds to give this speculation. If you flip over to Revelation chapter 14 for just a minute, Revelation chapter 14, I want to draw your attention to verse 1 because you'll notice that the lamb shows up with these 144,000 again. We'll talk about that in depth when we get to the 14th chapter. It'll be a few weeks, but then I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. But then there's this interesting statement 
In verse 4, about these 144,000, in the middle of the verse, we read, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. My suspicion is, these 144,000 that the Lord has obviously met there in Israel, they're like the trail guides. They'll be the people who will be able to lead the people who really do believe the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to establish his kingdom, they'll be able to lead these people. They'll be following the Lord who will be leading them to places in the wilderness and in the mountain areas where they will be safe. And God will provide for them miraculously there. We learn that from other passages of Scripture. So I do think there is a literal wilderness escape that many of these Jews will have. Secondly, many Jews will literally flee Israel, go to Gentile nations. We learn in Matthew 25, there's going to be a judgment of the nations in regard to how those nations treated Jewish people. Well, during that judgment of the nations, the nations are called to face Jesus Christ, and he said, you know, I was in jail, you came and visited me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was cold, you gave me something to wear. And the people who are Gentiles go, when did we do that? When did we do that? And he says that in the context of the tribulation. Jesus said, you did it to my little ones. You did it to my family. You did it to the Jews. Because you actually helped the Jews survive the tribulation when Satan and his forces were trying to exterminate them. They literally risked their lives to do that, by the way. Jesus will say to them, come on, come on into the kingdom that's prepared for them. You're going to get to share it with them. So I do think there will be a number of Jews who literally are going to escape to Gentile nations, and there will be some Gentile people that will live in various parts of the world that will house these Jews. They'll risk their lives to do it, but they're going to do it. Now, the thing that will show everyone that this satanic time is going to hit are these two signs. See, so people who say we're in the tribulation, what I'd like to say to them is, well, where did you look up in the sky and see that? You know, where were those two signs? How come you didn't see them? Because that's the thing that signals we're now in a major turning point in the tribulation. These two signs say it's turning to Israel. Now, Satan hates God's people. Satan hates God's word. He hates you. If you love the Lord and you love the word, he and his forces hate you. He's seeking who he can devour, who he may devour. You stay close to the Lord, you stay close to the word, and he will lose in his attack against us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your precious word, and we thank you for your precious people. Lord, we know that we're not the popular ones at the present time in the sight of the world, but we also know that we are the church of God, the bride of Christ, and we're your family. I know, Lord, there are times we have some struggles, and we don't look a lot like your family, but we're grateful for your grace and your mercy and your patience which enables us the opportunities to grow and mature. And I pray we would do that. I pray until we get out of this world, we would be people that would be focused on carefully and accurately understanding and applying your scriptures. 
I want to thank you for this good crowd that's here tonight. I want to thank you for the fellowship time that we're about to partake of. I want to thank you for each person who will share in that. Thank you for the food that's been prepared. Bless that in Jesus' name. Amen.